Hello, I'm Chris Coe, and this is a Newton & Co podcast for Eye for the Light. My co-presenter, or co-host, is fellow professional photographer David Newton, and I'll pass over to David to introduce today's guest. Good afternoon, everyone, or good evening, or good morning, whatever it might be. Uh, Welcome, fundamentally, uh, to another podcast with Chris and I. Today we are honoured to be joined by... Uh, well, an incredibly well-known photographer, uh, a name that, that you will probably all be familiar with if you are in the travel space, or even if you're not, actually, uh, Elia Lacardi. He is a photographer that has been location independent, that has covered a huge percentage of the world, as far as I can tell, that has developed all sorts of online training uh, and education methods to, to explain his way of working, uh, among many other things, and in fact is working on some of the most recent stuff with NFTs right now. So, Alaya, welcome. Well, it's good, good to be here. I, I don't know, yeah, morning, night, I don't think it really matters, it's all abstract, right? It's like, <laughs> we're awake, let's do this, Exactly. caffeine. <laughs> exactly. So, um, Chris, go on. You, yeah, on, you go. so we've given you the loose title of a travel photographer. Tell us how you got into the, the idea of travelling with your photography as a career? Yeah, well, the idea of being able to pick up a camera, go all over the world and and take pictures, right? I mean, that sounds great. It may be a little bit more difficult than that, but uh, it actually was an accident, complete accident that I uh, got into photography. Uh, Photography is a profession. Uh, The reason it came about is I studied computer animation, compositing, and I worked in post-production, and I realized that that's... 80 hour weeks it was it was crazy and and about the point I had been doing it for 10 years it was that that really fun time in the US where we had the housing crisis and the crash and actually lost we lost our home we had to file bankruptcy it was really a really tough time but I think at that point I I was ready to move on I I didn't want to do what I went to college for I I wanted to do something that I felt meant something you know, thinking that you're doing art and then getting a job where it's it's just you're you're cranking out all this work that, that ends up not meaning much. Like I'm doing fun stuff, but then I'm doing like furniture commercials, you know, and like this is this is not what I went to school for. And so that timing of kind of losing everything, starting over, and realizing that throughout that whole time we hadn't taken a single vacation, we hadn't prioritized travel, my wife had never left the United States, her family is Italian, so we started to just think about saving. You know, it was like, oh, we could eat out, we could do this, you know, but what if we save for a while? Could we afford to go somewhere? And we did, and that's what we did. And we visited Italy in uh, 2009 or 10, 2010, we visited, met my family for the first time over there, um, borrowed a camera, because I was like, I just want to be able to take photos while I'm there. And uh, it was great. It was just an amazing experience. And came back and we just kind of made this deal with each other, like, let's just prioritize living rather than working. Let's let's see if we can do that. And in 2011, I, I, I just kind of had an idea, like, what well, can this be something? And, and I think that having the idea of stopping doing everything because it's no longer fun and creative, it didn't last long enough. I'm like, I gotta do something that's creative, you know, I, I gotta do something. And having known Photoshop and all of these things, I didn't feel like that part was challenging. So I started kind of looking at different websites and a friend of mine was really nice enough to lend me his camera for a couple trips. And I started planning these trips and going and, and putting together a body of work. And I, I, I didn't know if it was any good. I, I didn't really care. I was just having a really good time. And I thought about it in terms of 
so digitally I can kind of do stuff if I need to fix stuff, but I really wanted to focus on the, the, the camera and the place. And I got some very, very bad advice in the beginning by multiple people who said, you can't go to these places like the Coliseum or the Eiffel Tower and make a new photo. It doesn't matter. It's, everybody does it. Everybody has that photo. Everybody can do it. And I'm like, I, I, don't think, I, I don't think that's true. I feel like we can do something different or there's a different... There's something we can do. So I spent a lot of time really thinking about that. How can the, the processing enhance this, this feeling of this place? And, you know, at the time, 2010, 11, 12, you know, our raw files were raw, but... There was nothing there. I mean, we had to blend layers. There was a lot that we had to do to kind of get these things back together. And around 2011-12, Google put together Google+. Um, I joined that community, started connecting with people, and it, it made uh, suddenly all of these people that I'd seen on websites I, I was speaking to and communicating with and traveling with and creating projects. So there was this amazing few years of like synergistic energy in the photography community then Facebook decided to do the public thing, you know, and Instagram. But these few years where it was about really getting to connect with people, and that's where I was able to develop other relationships. And I think I was already uh, sort of thinking in a business mindset. I, I took advantage of that. So it wasn't just, just utilizing this and, you know, traveling around. It was like, wow, you know, the Google offices are like, hey, you're going to be in Australia, visit. I'm like, great, you know, can we put together a photo wall? Can we do these other things? And, and very quickly connected to Fujifilm, met them, you know, went back when mirrorless was a cute idea. Remember that? We're like, man, it'd be so cool if we could just take these mirrorless cameras. And, you know, like, there's something here. So it to get to this now, it's, it's, it's always funny to hear somebody talk about those things. I'm like, What's, did I do that all, all that stuff? I don't remember. A lot of it was just trying to communicate, trying to make the best of a place, try to, try to show a place the best that it can be, to sort of honor that place. Um, connect with somebody emotionally whether they have been there or wanted to go there. Italy was a very easy one for that. Everybody loves it, you know. But then it was also keeping up with technology and figuring out how that applies to it. So not to overcomplicate, but to simplify it. So post-processing got easier, raw processing got easier. And then when, when we started duct taping GoPros to the bottom of flying cameras, that was amazing. Do you remember that was only a few years ago we had drones? So yeah. I actually walked right into the DJI HQ office and asked for a meeting. This is, I feel like this is the future. So it just started to kind of find things that connect together. And it's, uh, you know, something you know and something you don't know and, and figure out how to combine them in a new way. And, and so whether it's been education or photography or technology, I'm, I'm always trying to connect new things together. That, that's kind of how it all happened. You, you've flown through 10 years of photographic development and <laughs> well, you and basically the, the first you know, it's paragraph like, no that's like, fine it's like you know the first few years and you're like mm. how did you get into it how did it you, know, you like get this great like a great mm. introduction so well let's take you back so when you did that first trip to Italy mm. was that the first time that a camera came into your life as something more than just a recording device well, had you always been interested in photography so I was always interested in it and I, I loved, I thought it was going to be in, in video. You know, I, I didn't really think stills. I had one photography class, um, mm -hmm. but I always loved it. And I think getting back into it, it was something that I knew could be for myself. Yeah. Um, it was something where, you know, the inspiration creates what you capture. So going there and just taking photos of stuff, 
and when you don't travel very much, you, you know, manhole covers are impressive. Every little thing, every doorknob, everything, you know, because in the United States, nothing's really, our politicians are the oldest things we have. We, we really, <laughs> we, so it's like, I'm standing on something that's older than my country. And so it's, it's more like a visual, like, wow, you know, take photos of this and compositionally. And then, um, you kind of look back at it, you're like, okay, you know, maybe I, maybe I went a little overboard, but that it, it was because it, it gave me the excitement of, of creating again. That that's really why I was drawn to it. Yeah, and with your background knowledge of of what you could do with an image afterwards with the post production area, did this affect your approach to actually learning the kind of the mechanics of photography? Were you always pre visualizing, knowing that you what you could do? in post-production or did you pre-visualize the images and then take the post-production another step? A few times I was able to do panoramic photography before there was good software for stitching. Um, I think colors and, and lighting or, or just sort of getting the colors out of the sky that I want to, I, I could do that. But I think I, I still had, it was very important that I learned photography part of it because very clearly like if you don't get it all right in camera I mean it's it's a problem and I've messed up I, every we all mess up right so I think that I had a little bit of help with the previous knowing that I could fix something but then I was incredibly lucky when I messed everything up like we all do because I was still able to fix it mm. so maybe that saved me but it it, it just it, it more became uh, the for fortunate aspect of, of not saying, okay, I'm taking this, now what do I do with it? It, it was more, oh, I want to make this more contrasting, I want to combine this, I want to blend these exposures, and then if there wasn't software that did it, I would just do it in Photoshop. So I was able to kind of reach for the process uh, best suited for the task or problem I was trying to attack in the photo. It's interesting, you, because of your background, the way you've approached it, you've come with a knowledge of post-processing, whereas a lot of people will come in through photography through the camera and then they're trying to learn post-processing on the back end. But that in itself generates a somewhat controversial question of where does photography start and stop and where does it go with post-processing into being a digital image and no longer a photograph? And that's a really challenging question and you know, I'm curious to know your thoughts on it. <clears throat> Well, I'll, I'll lead this just, just by letting you know that I help train the AI system that's responsible for sky replacement, even though I may or may not need to do that, but clients ask me to do it all the time, and I'm like, I wish there was an easy way. Well, now, now there is, you know. Our technology is catching up, and it was actually fun. I think that over the last couple of years, you know, we've had tragedies, we've had you know, positive things, but we've all had a little bit more self-reflection than, well, maybe a little bit more than is normally healthy, right? But we've, we've been, had a chance to really think about things and uh, uh, approaching teaching workshops at, at this uh, exposure festival that was a, a lot of what I wanted to communicate it wasn't necessarily that uh, the first thing is is hey it's like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy don't panic it's, it's actually really easy but I think people confuse what that processing actually is you know so if I have to put two exposures together because there's an element that moved and then I have to you know, adjust the raws or, or blend the focus points together. None of that is, is post-processing, really. That's just solving a problem. It, it, it's really when you start post-processing something is, is after you kind of put it all together. And these days, we, we are all familiar with shooting raw. And that, that first 
I'm going to admit, I click the auto button, and if it doesn't work, then I change it. But that process, <laughs> that's so critical. That is not post-processing. That is just sort of balancing and calibrating your file. When you start adding you know, overlays, bleach by pass, high contrast, I mean, this is where you start to get at that. But that's such a small percentage. And I think that when you can start to, if you've never done it before, it can seem overwhelming. Because if you go to YouTube, you search, how do I make my photos look awesome? It doesn't go so well. There's a lot. There's, I mean, let's, let's be honest. All, I mean, and I, I, luminosity masking is an amazing tool when you need it, but it's not a solution to post-processing, right? But it sounds awesome. I should learn it. It sounds complicated. Frequency separation. When I was creating Photographing the World, Patrick Hall was like, you need to call it something as good as frequency separation because everybody will buy it. And I'm like, I'm not going to do that. But he understood, you know. Usually when you're, you, you, come, you stumble on a problem, or in your photos, you, you want to ask, ask yourself, what does this need? Rather than just reaching for all of these options or solutions to a problem you don't even know you have. And I know at first, it's experimental. You know, apply some presets, see what you like. But then when you look at your photos, that's what you have to ask yourself. Well, okay, I want it to look like more vibrant. It's like, well, okay, what does that mean? And you can constantly break it down and say, oh, well, that just means that I want the the horizon have a little bit more orange, you know, or I want the shadows or this to have more contrast. And I think that if you think of the editing process in those terms, then it automatically simplifies it because rather than going to a whole software package or solution to something, you're actually just identifying one problem that you want to correct. And then you can find the tool that's best suited for it. So it takes that overwhelming away and it, and it really goes to continue to celebrate the fact that Every most of everything that you're doing now is is that being there, capturing it, thinking about the light. All of these things that we think are being automated, they're not. It's still important. The post processing, fix it in Photoshop. We're making one button, one slider. You know, this is great because that we can think of editing as never getting in the way of our creative vision, only being able to enhance an idea that we already have. But if you uh, to touch back on something you said earlier on, when you started travelling, you wanted to go and explore a place to honour a place, and then you've mentioned that you know you've been involved in training sky replacement. If you're going to replace a sky in an image from, let's say you've been to Italy and you replace a sky and, and you don't know where that sky came from that you've put in there, maybe it's come from America, that might be a type of sky that you're never going to see in Italy because the climactic conditions just don't allow it to happen. Is that still honoring the place? Uh, it depends. Because considering... It, so there's, a, there, there's this line that everybody draws in the sand of, of where photography is no longer photography and then it becomes art or photo manipulation or whatever. And, and people will be like, yeah, I, I replaced the sky, but I'll, I'll never mess with the moon. That's just wrong. You know, so <laughs> I started to find that I... You know, obviously, yeah, that was, that was sort of a big deal. Or, you know, yeah, if I'm going to... I'd put more texture in the sky and make sure it was from Italy. But these are just things that, that made me feel good. The, the difference is be, between saying what you're doing or trying to hide the fact that you're doing something. So I'll never say, like, this was happened and, and everything was perfect and the Milky Way was whatever. You know, if I have to shoot two times... I'll, I'll have to blend it together. That's that's something that I'll do, but it's never like passed off as something uh, legitimate. And for sky replacement, it, it does come in handy, and, and usually it's it's client work or or it's art, you know. Mm -hmm. And what happened? The reason that that happened is I, I have spent months or years in this in the same place or continuously visiting to get the right conditions, 
that's cool because I, I can do that. Most most people can't do that. Most, and in fact, don't. It's ridiculous. It's it's obsessive. You know, go to the doctor first to make get clear with the doctor. <laughs> but this is something that yeah, it takes a lot of time, a lot of planning to get those conditions naturally. And I think I've always thought, you know, if you, not everybody can do this, I don't mind if people replace it. It just has to look correct. And so when the pandemic was on, I had companies ask for like, oh, can you do 50, 60 images? I'm like, I don't. Well, let me look at my archives. I don't. I have not looked at them for a while. I had to go through all of my archives, and I found, you know, for every one photo that had an epic sky, there were fifty different ones that I just didn't think the sky was right. And I'm like, yeah, some of these are actually pretty good. And then I used those as the basis for the sky replacement. Went out, sunset, horrible job sitting on the the, the water at sunset in Florida, and you know, having a beer and, and shooting the sky for a couple months. How did you cope? But it was it was able to actually deliver some of these these things and kind of spawn that. So I will, you know, I, I don't, I won't go far with blending time. Like I'll put the sunset and the blue hour together so it feels good, communicates a range of time into a single image because our brains don't think single image We're like, oh, the wine, the smell, the company, the everything, the sunset, these colors hitting this. It's a way that we can blend time. But I won't do like the Milky Way with the sun, with the, you know, like I won't take it that far. But I admire people that can do it and where I like it. Even though I recognize that it is a composite, I'm like, that's really beautifully done. So as an educator, I've had to remove that, that line in the sand for, for what I'll look at and consume and then just sort of move mine to where it feels justifiable for me. But I'm never going to put something like... I, actually, last year, my gallery exposure was a, a large part of an experiment for the sky replacement, three of the photos have different skies. And I and I, I asked everybody here if it was okay. They said, yeah, it's fine. I'm like, okay, good. You know, I wanted to put a, a, a story about the weather together. And I wanted to see if it held up with large print we were working on. So I feel like it, it, that's okay. You know, I don't think we should, it's hard to blur that line. It's hard to, to be the authority that says, this is no longer photography. This is no longer this. So the longer term implications however are potentially huge because if you if you look at say photographers that don't do it and then you've got clients who are looking for work you know they're, they're looking for images to use yada 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 the images that have maybe had that done uh, have had sky replacement are going to usually look better because you know you've done whatever manipulation or, or replaced a sky or whatever so the lighting is somehow fantastical without being fantastical if that makes sense and now you've got photographers who don't do that trying to compete to sell their work does that mean eventually at some point everyone's basically just got to go down that route otherwise they're going to be competed out of the market no not that far no I think that that from a traditionalist standpoint it, it can be tough when technology changes because it can seem threatening and, and we can go back just not too many years like well actually AI is now becoming accepted right but just two three years ago it was it was bad you know uh, and we go back obviously film versus digital autofocus on cameras I mean like we can keep finding these points in history where people were like that is no longer photography and, and arguably yeah compositing manipulation is is along the same lines of story but different but the mistake is to say this is wrong, therefore for I won't learn how to do it. And, and so, and not saying that you would ever use this, but there may come a time when some idea clicks and that makes sense. The library of 
fake images, if we're just going to call them that, is yes, definitely increasing. But that's not just because of this technology. It's because our buying habits for photography have changed and it, it pretty much has no value unless it's, it's nice. Hey, hey, shiny, don't scroll past me on Instagram. <laughs> and the other thing is, is it's not even that. That's the, the other problem even comes, comes to Google. Search any location on Google and, and how, how, how far do you scroll down before it's like, you, I'm looking at Florida and then the Coliseum is there. I'm like, it, it, none of this, this indexing, everything, is, it's just a big mess. And I think at that point, the noise level is so high that if somebody's serious about artwork, fine art, magazines, they're, they're going to have to kind of push all that to side. Like, they're, they're I'm hopefully not all going to unsplash. Like, hopefully we're looking for the, the truth or the identity. And then if it's a, you know, expose on just, like, crazy sunsets, <clears throat> or the biggest example, the best one, is uh, real estate photography. It's all composites now. Some of them look ridiculous, but some of them look good, you know. They, or they'll put a blue sky in. Because that's what the people want, you know. Like that's that's where you can say argue and say, hey, that's all composited, and people are okay with it. I think that we just have to accept to learn, you know, try, experiment, and everything, and then just kind of be honest with it. That's the most important thing. I think what I've learned about the internet, and I've posted a lot of things to the internet, and you know what happens when you do that. Yeah, you know, they're pointing at each other. Yeah, don't check Reddit and things like that. You know. Is that is people? It's not that they have a problem with composites. The biggest problem they have is when people aren't saying they're composites. Mm -hmm. Do you see? Yeah. yeah. And I, I think that it's hard. You think that even though it's automated, I I, I could give you a, a scene and I could give you forty skies, and not a single one of those guys would fit with the scene, no matter how good the compositing is. So to just summarize your approach to it. You're doing post-processing to develop the picture rather than post-processing for the sake of it or just because you can. And you're maintaining some um, element of truth and reality in what you're trying to do. Would that be a fair yeah. summary? Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. So there is no real procedure for post-processing, but there's a procedure for the process of, of completing an image that has steps in editing or shooting. For example, uh, something that is going to be focus stacked and focus bracketing just means that you're taking, you know, here's the background, the middle ground, the foreground so that you can blend all that together. Okay. That takes a little bit more planning because, you know, you have to think about it in the environment. No movement, nothing's moving, no blowing wind, trees, stuff like that. And then you have to make sure that you shoot it correctly. And then you still have to treat this now. It's not one raw, it's three raws. And then that has to go to another process where it, it, it analyzes the, the depth map or whatever data you use, if it's a pyramid or depth, and then puts that together. And then you have this file, and then you can edit that. So these are, I don't think that's really post-processing. I think that's just, you know, it, it's, it's kind of just building it back to what it should be. And then the, the post-processing is where you just go wild and dial it to 11 or make it black. You, you know what I mean? Like, But we're always trying to, I feel like it's always trying to get back to what we thought it was first, and then we can we can push it. Do you understand? Yeah. And Fujifilm yeah. has spent decades on this researching what they call memory color, and that's why everybody gets uh, really happy about their their, their uh, JPEG, pre, you know, their uh, presets and their their film looks because they studied well when we actually see red on the screen versus how we remember it is a little bit different. So they base a lot of their stuff on the science of how the brain interprets color rather than the, the actual factual color. So if you think about that, 
we're already lying to ourselves <laughs> anyway because it's all the way that we perceive things so the editing you can edit if you can if you dial it all up to 11 and it looks good that's awesome but if it doesn't take anything that's awesome too so it never gets in the way um, it's hard to think of it as a solution because there's so many other elements kind of come into play yeah and, and photography's time and light and you mentioned you know dealing with an image over a period of time that sounds exciting so this is fun so the the blend blending call it moments in time 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 blending and uh I, this this was always an idea, right? And and I think I had this like moment in I think it was Venice, and it was like 2011 ish or early 2012, and and I was standing on the Rialto Bridge, and everybody's standing on the Rialto Bridge, right? And it was such a nice sunset, you know, everything was looking good, and I, I had this idea like when I traveled. You know, photographing like the gondola and everything would be beautiful and the guys wearing like the striped shirt and the hat and everything and then what I realized it's just like people in Hello Kitty t-shirts and all this stuff like they look horrible tourists shouldn't look like that they should <laughs> shouldn't be allowed wear. should they yeah you should have to wear Venetian clothing you know and it's getting worse and worse because now a few years ago it's like iPad iPad selfie 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 sticks those are gone thank goodness selfie sticks hanging out everywhere so I was like oh what the what the hell, you know, like this is perfect. And then I wanted to capture uh, that, you know, a nice trail of that. So I had done sunset and that's F8, you know, longer exposure doesn't really matter. And then I was like, I'm just gonna crank the ISO up and just start capturing a bunch of these and I'll just fix it in post. Now that was a fixed in post moment until I find one that's gonna look nice. And then when I started editing it, I was like, at the point of sunset, I wonder if I, and then I just started, since I didn't move the camera, I just, I added the lights, some more lights in the buildings. And then, um, you know, I fixed the, the weird looking people, or sorry, the Hello Kitty t-shirts. You, <laughs> you weren't weird, if you're actually in that photo, I'm sorry. But you, you just, it, you were doing something weird. So, and then I, I kind of put that together and I'm like, wow, that's nice. So I, I started to, to leave the camera in the same place. And then I was able to kind of get that, uh, a good point when the sky's, very vibrant and red, but then a little bit longer, 15, 20 minutes is when the lights from the city come on. And, and this has always been the trouble, is that fiery sunset and the mm -hmm. dark foreground. So, or the blue hours, one or the other. So I, st I started experimenting with putting this together um, just in different spots all over the world. So that, that's kind of where that time blending came. And it wasn't like the temporal blending that we see um, amazing people do from like left to right, where it goes day to night or this. It, it was really just about being able to condense uh, natural light and artificial light together in, in a visually harmonious way because there are only certain times a year, like in the summer and obviously in, in Europe and Northern Europe, it's like sunset all the time and the lights are on. In Rome in May, it's a late sunset and the lights are already on. So th there are times when you can do this, but it's very rare that it actually happens. So that was, that was in order to kind of solve that problem and then it more expressed all the visual and emotional things that I went through through that you know the, the colors the clouds in Greece the the blue domes lighting up the you know these all these things all the light that captured my attention and, and to be able to make it seamlessly into a single photograph mm. essentially blending a time-lapse into a single frame yeah and it's very much like time-lapse <clears throat> And and a, a, and a quick quick note on that, I, I'd always sit there and, and click the shutter with a remote thing. And then when uh, I think the first time we were filming, photographing the world, and we were in Italy, 
I was explaining this on camera and I was doing all this kind of stuff and clicking it and, and Lee, Lee, Lee Morris, is a, Lee Morris and Patrick Hall are the two original life stoppers. He goes, he's like, dude, why don't you just put that into time-lapse mode? Like, why are you even clicking the shutter? And I'm like, I always felt like, you know, I, because I feel like I need to do something. He's like, why? And I'm like, fine. So I will set the camera up and then pretty much just say, you know what, shoot every minute and a half, two minutes, whatever bracket. So that was the beginning of actually just setting it and only changing it if settings needed to be changed. <laughs> and actually freed me up to shoot with another camera. So yeah. I, I bring two. So I set one, this is going to be sort of a wide time blend. And then the other camera is going to be, um, you know, as if I was moving around. Because you have to commit to the time blend. You have to know which shot you want. You have to kind of anticipate what's going to happen. And you can't change it because if you move it, I mean, there are ways to put it back together in Photoshop, but it's never going to be the same. Yeah. Storytelling is a big thing in photography. Do you try and tell your stories in a single frame? Or are you looking to put together a collection that will tell a story of a place or an event or whatever you happen to be photographing? I like to allow the photos to speak for themselves, which isn't a, a new answer. Obviously, we have amazing photojournalists. I mean, that's what they do. Um, what I thought in the beginning was when somebody looks at the photo, I don't want them to ask, where is it? And, and not just because it's a famous place, but because it represents the area so well. So the photo I have of Japan, of the Trade of Pagoda, it has the, the beautiful red pagoda, the vermilion color, it has cherry blossoms and it has Mount Fuji. So I, I found that this was, if I could pick one thing that just represents Japan, that was it. Like it had, it had everything there. So I'll shoot other locations around there, but it, it, to get that hero shot is rare um, because not all locations have that communication ability at all. Like in no yeah. amount of post-processing, you could do dramatic things to make it really nice. You can, you can there are people do amazing looks on things. But to give it its own justice of, of its proper color and, and, and light, all the elements are there. Like I, so it ends up being a lot less, and then there's sort of some fill-in. But I'm not really shooting in volume unless it's commissioned. And even then, those aren't making it into my galleries or, or portfolio. So I have the ability to do it, but I'm always looking for those wow shots, those hero shots, those ones that'll speak for themselves. You talked about photographing the world, but at one stage you became location independent, <laughs> kind of well before location independence became a thing, or a digital nomad before digital nomads was a term. And how did that impact your photography? And is it something you'd recommend others doing? Oh, definitely. Just not for five years. You know, don't. <laughs> I mean... It, Long, yeah, longer, right? Oh, yeah. Well, it's, it's a little easier now, too, because, you know, remember when uh, we had paper maps instead of Google Maps? and Yeah. So it, it came about because we... I already said the bankruptcy thing. We didn't have a lot to work with. So everything that we did was stretching it to the limit. And we quickly realized that the only way we're going to be able to accelerate travel and travel longer was to just change our lifestyle. We could get rid of all of the bills that we have at home, rent and everything, apply that same to travel, then we can do that. So uh, cars became cameras and tripods, you know, everything went, everything went and we, we spent a lot of time uh, before actually taking off in March of 2012. And we did it for it was, it was right around five years, even though it was transforming after three because it, it got so busy. 
And it, I think that the whole idea of trial by fire, it, it can be really important. And I've always learned that way. Like I've thrown myself into something I don't fully understand so that I have to perform and learn. You know, even if I'm, if I'm doing a keynote or anything on, on stage here at Exposure, I, I, I purposefully, uh, I don't want to say this, but I don't plan as much because I, I, I want, it's not a challenge, but I do better a little bit under pressure. So if you're that kind of person and if you're adventurous, and that's important, it's not introvert, extrovert, it's adventurous. And now in the age of mindfulness, we call that curiosity. So, and this doesn't matter what kind of photos you do. You can't be just on the tourist track, right? If you're going to do this, you're going to commit to this lifestyle, then commit to actually spending time and getting to know these locations and knowing the people, knowing the everything. It gives you the opportunity to be fully present and without ever having to go home, even though you are technically traveling from place to place. And we'd average maybe a week in each place. The, the right way to do it is, say, three months here and then that visa to go three months here and establish sort of a base of operations. But we actually couldn't afford that at the time. We couldn't have a one place to go to other places. So we would just go from place to place to place to place to place. And I think it was it was great. But after, you know, two years, I was like, you know, I don't think I have anything left to prove. It's there 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 are amazing ups and amazing downs to it. But I think doing it that early was was kind of kind of cool. And the the whole term location independence was was kind of something we manufactured is this sounds cool, you know? And and honestly, that's it, explaining it to our parents was really hard. And I make that joke on, in my talks that it's easier to say, hey mom, I'm becoming location independent, rather than say, hey, we're gonna be homeless for a while, don't worry about us, you know? <laughs> it, it makes it, you think that it's all well thought out, but it's, it was very much a leap of faith. You know, uh, our families uh, are, are, you know, come from simple beginnings, we don't have safety nets, but we, I think having already, not failed, but, but sort of lost everything, it was like, what's the worst that can happen, right? If we have to go back home and get a job, like, it's not so bad. And, and I think that was really what it was. You, you have to have a little bit of tenacity, right? And you, and you have to be able to kind of make that commitment and, and, and go all in. So if you're going to do it, and, and, and you know, your partner is nice enough to want to do this too, it's not easy to quit everything and, and, and do that. Just know that you, your heart has to be in it 100%. That, that's really the key to it. Let, let's go on a little bit, talk about the business of photography and about sure. earning a living. Um, starting with promoting yourself. Mm. Um, obviously, we're looking, we've got multiple ways of earning through commissions, through stock photography, through prints, etc. What's the role of social media in that now as opposed to how we used to get ourselves out there? It's, it's a tough... It's, 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 it's tough. But it's tough in different ways. I, I don't think there's been a point in the history, the, the 180 plus year history of photography where it, where it hasn't been competitive or difficult. There was a point probably 20 years ago when it was very much, I can afford to buy this gear, so I'm gonna get hired as a photographer, right? Like that, that was, to, if you wanna shoot medium format, that was fifty, sixty thousand $60,000, that was the buy-in, and that wasn't a normal thing. But we didn't have cameras in between. So around the time that social media started to become a, a driving uh, factor for influence, and when we started to have this term influencer, brand influencer, ambassador, everything was becoming a little bit more accessible. But I think at that same time, stock photography wasn't really as viable. Microstock had changed everything. 
you know, you'd see a, a really sharp pyramid. There were a few people doing it and probably still doing it. And then it, there wasn't a, a mechanism to, to say, I'm going to sell my photos, just my photos. To this day, you can be an event photographer. You can be a wedding photographer. You can, there are business models that you can follow. But when you say, I want to be a travel photographer, it gets more and more difficult because ma magazines are not, they're not sending people. I mean, or if they are, they're sending people they've worked with, but they're able to get these images. You know, it, it's changed a lot. In order to do something unique, we challenged ourselves to know that we didn't have a roadmap. And, and that, that, was, that was very difficult. I, I think in order to sort of supplement some of that, I looked at not just my photography, but everything surrounding photography and that we do. So it, it was, I, I taught at a university for, it was actually a professor when I was in my 20s, they didn't know I was in my 20s when they hired me. <laughs> I learned how to, I, I built a whole degree program and, and I never intentionally went back to teaching, but I found myself doing it. And, and, and it was, I got frustrated with looking at YouTube and I was like, I just, just want to, you know, teach some stuff. So that was great. I started speaking and teaching and then that, that helped sort of accelerate that kind of stuff. For somebody getting into it today, and uh, I, a lot of my friends asked me that, would you have done the same thing today? And I said, I don't think I could have. Because at the time that I did it, I, there were two things. There was no social media, so we kind of grew into it. But two, I wasn't inundated with all of these people that are more successful or more whatever. There, was, there literally was no one to parallel, right? So now I think that this self-promotion is even more difficult and it's something that you have you don't have to do but you have to make sure that the way that you're doing it is synonymous to your actual personality and the good sort of litmus test for this is if something turns you off on social media no matter how famous somebody is if you're like oh he's it's weird or it feels it's probably not genuine so you're, you're already getting the sense of, of what, what feels real. And then when you start posting, it, it has to come from the heart. And the, the fortunate thing that happens with oversaturation of markets is after a while, people are specifically looking for unique voices in it. And in an age of, of, of this, this massive connectivity, communication, global news connected, real news, fake news, facts, alternative facts, you know, I thought that at we got, when we got to this point, there'd be so many diverging ideas, but what's actually happening, and if you, and if you look at Instagram, if you really look at Instagram, if you really look at Twitter and the, the .f space and the, the NFT photographers, we're really not seeing a bunch of new things. We're seeing a new thing done the same way. So if you analyze it, and that's what people do startups, they analyze, they come up with the idea, they analyze, and then they find a niche niche you just have to look at it and you'll actually very quickly identify that while all of this is going on in the same it's very easy to do something different you just have to stop thinking that that's it mm. and in business it's kind of the same um, it's more about relationships than it is that influence and I can tell you that the influencer jobs they can be fun you know but that shouldn't be the goal of, of picking up a camera to, to become an Instagrammer you know it's it's really about your reputation and personality so Start going to events. That's the biggest thing. I went to a lot of trade shows, conventions, speaking at them, meeting people, talking to companies, seeing, hey, I have this project, I think it'll fit. Oh, that's great. You know, Adobe wanted to do raw things, so we went to Greece and we filmed this other thing. 
when I was there, I met a, a tourism agency and they were like, oh, we love this, let's do this, this next year increase. All of these things connect uh, more because of your, your personality and your, your, your personable skills than, than your photos. So I think we forget that. So, so no matter what vehicles we're using for communication, we have to remember that we have to build the same foundational relationships and, and sort of that, you know, it, just mingling, commingling with people that we would in any other industry. Photography is not like, oh, I'm going to show it, everybody's going to look at it, and then I'm going to get all this work. No, it doesn't work that way. And you may think that the, the industry is this huge amount of people, but it really isn't. It, it, it's small, and, and people are really nice, and, and they'll, they'll talk to you. But that's really where you can succeed, is seeking people out, asking questions, finding out you know, if you want to get sponsored by a company. Like start looking at, the, looking at their social media, find out what they're doing, when are they going to be somewhere, go talk to them get ideas, share ideas, communicate, and that's how you build it. Um, you mentioned the sort of NFT space. Yeah, I was trying not to be negative about it. There's amazing artists on there, sure, but it was a good example of now we're, see we're seeing all this, and it's like, how am I going to compete with all of this stuff, and where do I go? It, having more accessible information doesn't necessarily help us make decisions or feel good. You know, it makes us feel like overwhelmed or... You know, and I like I'll look at work and I'm like, man, that's amazing. It's way better than I can. We all do that, but we have that's where it can be dangerous because then we try to emulate without knowing it. Yeah. And NFTs are obviously a hot topic at the moment. And many photographers they go, yeah, I've got to do NFTs, but they don't really know what they are. Yeah. How well, would you describe if it makes an you NFT feel for a photographer? If it makes you feel better, there was a big. Uh, discussion about what to call it and and my, my friend Will Entrekin was one of the lead authors on ERC 721 and he's been fun to talk to and, and, and have a few beers with right and he was like yeah so I didn't want it to be called NFT and, and, and a lot of us wanted to just call it a digital deed so let me ask you this question do you think there'd be this craze for digital deeds or do you think that word NFT because we're what is that what is a fungible what is a token this is this has caused a lot of a lot of hype and, and attention to something that actually has been around for years and years and years. Digital authentication, blockchain's a little new, but it's been around. That would have been different, right? Mm, Don't absolutely. think digital like oh I, I oh I just got this digital deed. It's not as catchy. It's not it as catchy. Trip right? off the tongue quite as well. Right, but more descriptive, arguably. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You more know, NFT is perfect branding, but you, you have to you have to consider what it actually is. And yeah, it's not it's not the artwork. It's not the NFT. It's just a, a proof of authentic, uh, authenticity, right? A smart contract is not smart. It's just a little piece of code that references to whatever it is. A good example of this is that the, the reason that NFTs have done so well, and it's, it, I'm working in the photography sector, which needs a lot of, a lot of help to you know, continue and grow, but if you think about owning baseball cards or something, right? Like, it, do you really need to own the physical card? You just need to know you own it. So I kind of thought of it that way. Like, if I just bought the, the, the token version of it, and, and then I never have to look at the card again, Arguably, I don't need the card itself, and it's probably just going to be in a case somewhere. What the NFT actually does is it gives us the ability to tie that, in this case, a physical object, um, to a digital token. <clears throat> and when but I say token... How, do, how does that fit with photography as an aesthetic where you do want to look at it? Well, so that's the thing. So what, when we're saying like an NFT is not the thing, um, this idea of an NFT photographer... And this, this uh, misconception that an NFT is a medium, right? 
And there was this controversy for a while because Wikipedia would not define NFT as art. So like, there were all, I bookmarked all these articles and everybody was really mad. No, it's art, it's art, it's art. Well, so yeah, I mean, you're creating art, you know? And this, this, is, this is all kind of being dictated by the people who are buying it, right? You know, so this is, they're, they're learning just as everybody else is learning, right? Because it's not like they're consulting like other photographers, you know, it's, it's very much happening. But it's, it's um, what, I, what I feel is really interesting is when you think about it is, I've created this NFT, and what you're going to hear is like, I created an NFT, it's a one of one, this is my Genesis drop. Right? It's a series of one-of-ones. One that means this photo is not going to be reproduced. In, in this world, an exposure would be this is a one-of-one one signed print. Right? It's not going to be sold anywhere else. So that's cool. It's a one-of-one. One. You, own, you own this image. You don't own the commercial rights. You, it's, it's like buying a print, right? Um, and then there's a series of them, and they kind of get sold. But everybody kind of talks about it that way. I created this NFT. Here's my NFT. Here's my NFT. The photo hasn't changed in any way. Nothing has changed from, from the point. It, it's unique because now it's tokenized. But it was unique when it was in Photoshop. It was unique when you shot it. It didn't change at all to become an NFT. Nothing changed. So it's not like you said, I'm going to take this and print it on the canvas. I'm going to take this and put it on this wall. I'm going to take this and put it there. You've actually uploaded it to something like OpenSea or Foundation and they've turned into a JPEG, and that, that token or that smart contract is just linking to that listed somewhere, which, by the way, isn't necessarily there forever. So the argument is, do you actually need to own the physical object? Do you actually need to own the photo? But then, where's the value in it? Because if you, if you own a print, you go buy a print, you put it on your wall, you can view that print and you've got a one-of-one one print, but nobody else can view that unless they come to you. But then, if it's a, a digital file, you own the NFT, but that file can still be viewed on the internet. Anyone else can see and enjoy that. So where's the value in owning an NFT for That it? is the exact value, because that's flex. Like, say everybody, everybody is using this photo everywhere, and it's really famous, but I actually own it. That's what they call flex. So when you're seeing the, the profile photos, the PFPs, CryptoPunks, Crypto... Uh, I think it's Crypto Aliens just sold like uh, 26, 23 million. I don't want to get that wrong, but it, it just sold out. These profile photos, a, a lot of people buy them for flex. So when you have it um, and, and people look it up, they see that you own it. It's like, that thing's worth two, three million dollars. You know, that's, that's flex. That's, a lot of it is just because you actually own something that's replicated online. And, and again, I'm explaining this with... Profile photos, the PFP projects, and all of these things, right? CryptoPunks, uh, Bored Apes. That, that makes a lot more sense, where you're like, it doesn't really matter. I mean, this really is little pixelated JPEG, and you're going to find it everywhere. So you, it, arguably, it's going to be on the internet forever, so it's never actually going to get lost. But what's actually happening with photography is you're getting capped at a certain amount. So you, when you're uploading to OpenSea, I think it, it'll create a JPEG, and I think you can maximum like 35 megs or something, right? So in order to actually own it, you can download it, right? The JPEG or whatever. You can ask the artist for it and you can keep it, right? But most people won't even want the print or the high-res file. They, they just want to own it and trade it. Now, the cool thing about this, if you think about a deed, right? I mean, transferring a deed is, is done. It's a ledger system, right? It's like, I sold it to you, you sold it to Chris, and, and then we're... We're actually showing this. 
even though we talk about this all being anonymous and wallet addresses, this is all logged. You know, so say say my company light.art, we mint it, right? But then it ends up on OpenSea. So in that code, it would be you'd see light because it's our contract name, uh, but then you'd see Chris Co. Right? And then this has been bought by this first price, and then maybe somebody else buys it and ends up on foundation. You're going to be able to see this entire ledger history. So from a collection, uh, a resale standpoint, this is this is actually quite unique. And there's some cool things we can get into the contract about percentages always coming back to the artist every time it's sold. It gets comp too complex. It's a different conversation. But this idea of seeing this, this historic value and this growth in value is pretty cool. Um, so you can actually start establishing a value by, by changing your own sort of floor price or, or your own tradable price. So th there's a lot of really positive things to this. But the broken part, you actually, you actually nailed it. Is is what what are you actually getting? Is photography reduced down to I just need to have this JPEG and, and, and that's good enough, or do I actually want the digital file? We're experimenting and creating some partnerships. So if you buy one, uh, you can get the print obviously if you want it because some people don't. Um, but we're trying to make that available. We don't have a solution yet, but we're trying to uh, be able to sort of digital vault these high res files so that they're actually there. You know, but then you're dealing with storage. A lot of this has to be done. Uh, off-chain means a normal way, right? Mm -hmm. Not written to the blockchain. So, so let's say as a photographer I've bought into this and I've decided to mint an NFT, NFT of, of one of my images. Can I get it wrong? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, 90% of the smart contracts are crap. We're already starting to see lawsuits about it. Um, they're, they're not, they're not non-fungible, that's the whole thing. What's written into a smart contract might be a little bit of metadata, right? And then it might link to other things. But if you actually track it down, and I like, I love Airweave, but a lot of the stuff's kept on Airweave, which is another blockchain that will host images in perpetuity. What does that actually mean, right? Like, we don't, we don't actually know. So, y yes, you can mess it up, um, and a lot of the contracts are pretty bad. Uh, we just found out OpenSea was doing some stuff off-chain, and this caused people to be able to actually roll back the price. So if something was like 250 Ethereum, which is a lot of money, mm -hmm. they were actually able to roll back the price by going into the code because they were storing that code on, I guess, on their website. And I'm not, I'm not, I have a coder on my team, so that it's not, it's probably more technical than that, but they were able to bring that back to like to Ethereum and buy it, right? Because they weren't, at, this is not, it should have been on the, the blockchain, but it's very expensive to write to the blockchain. So yes, no, this is all, very, there's so much of it is, is really janky. 80% of it is fraud. Things are, are sold as NFTs. My work's all over as NFTs. They're not mine. I didn't create them. Uh, this, is, uh, this is all going to happen. And yes, you can manipulate the system. Peter Lick, an anonymous auction. His photo was bought, never published who did it. You know, our, you, people buy their own work. This happens too. You can buy your own work if you have a theorem. You can make it more valuable. Of course, this is all going to happen, um, but at the at the core of it, there's this this vehicle of extra distance of communication that we can do, um, because one, the ownership of something is, is is a little different. If you buy a print, it's cool, but again, maybe you can sell it, but you, it's 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 in your home. It's something you love, right? This is something like I can I can buy Chris's photos, and then I can sell them later. And somebody who also likes them can buy them too, you know. And this this will live on forever if we take all the fraud and everything away. This is a really cool thing, you know, to have this. And so, from a collection art artist, you know, standpoint, it's very cool. And it gives us the ability to 
bring in a new audience of buyers who wouldn't necessarily come to a gallery, right? Because they can own this. This, they can actually own this, and they don't have to physically have it. So there are some, some positive things, but we'll get past that. You know, NFT, NFT, NFT. And, and it actually is, I promise, very simple. But I think, I think the challenge right now for a lot of people, maybe I'm just old and don't understand it. Probably I'm is, older. Is, you are. <laughs> you are. I wasn't going to say that. But um, it's, it's like, where do you even get started with it? Because it's, we're hearing so much about it that it seems like you're dealing with, and it's a really odd choice of words, an ethereal thing that seems so nebulous that you can't even get into it for a photographer because we're so used to dealing with a physical item that it's just it's like a yeah it's like mind-blowing at at some point for I guess for a lot of people in this space yeah what I what I challenge people with is uh, if you're if you're thinking about a project or you're thinking about something to do with NFTs take the word NFT out of it and see if you can still do it and if you can Mm -hmm. don't use an NFT and, and 99% of the time, you can do it without NFT. Yeah. And then you can think about, well, if we put this on OpenSea, can we raise more money for this? Or what does that mean? Um, because the, the mistakes aren't just with the contracts. It's if I sell a one of one, what's to stop me from selling another one of one? I mean, it's a digital mm-hmm. file, right? It, it's, there's really no regulation for this. And we're starting to call, call out people that have been selling something as a print for, forever and then selling it as a one of one. So yeah, it's, there's no protection or anything. That's what that's why this platform we're building is just there's it's not a public platform. It can't be. We have to vet. We we have to curate. We have to make sure that if this this artist is doing this, if it's going to be a one of one or one of fifty, whatever it is, that it's legit, right? And we have to make sure that that photographer has a contract in place that they fully understand what they're giving away and a buyer that comes in knowing exactly what they're getting and what that means. And you'd think that would be really easy to do, but there's so much just, you know, nonsense out there uh, mm. that it, it makes it more difficult. But it also, to me, proved that it, it, it's becoming more and more important. Okay. So let's... let's wind up by going back to photography in its purest sense what's the next photographic project for you what is the next photographic project I want to take my camera to Italy and not have any obligations to do anything with the photos I don't want it to be tied into (laughs) you know a project or whatever I want no anticipation of needing to turn it into anything because uh, you know the pandemic is great I, I spent the whole time with my daughter which has been amazing but I was starting to feel like it, it wasn't pressure but you you start connecting so many dots together and so many projects together that you don't lose the uh, ability to create but you, you start losing some of the, the, the curiosity because you're looking at okay I know I need this, 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 or this, 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 this. And, and often the best work that I've ever found has been in between all of that. So if I just go to, to photograph beautiful things and have a good time doing it, then I'm probably going to be able to generate more for my portfolio than I will just taking a project. So I think that it's time now after time off to just, just get back to the reason I started was just to take photos mm-hmm. and travel. 
And beyond going to Italy, you've been to what, 70? 70 something countries, Don't, yeah. Where have you not been that's top of your list? Uh, believe it or not, there's uh, quite a few. I'm trying to put a trip together to South Georgia. I would like to go to Georgia, the country. I've been trying to go there for forever. Um, and then a lot of Central Asia, and I haven't visited Nepal. Yeah, that, that's also somewhere that I, I want to spend some time, just because I'm in, I'm in Bhutan fairly often. Um, there are a couple places that are remote that I want to go to that are going to require like multiple days of hiking and things like that, but I think I'm ready to try that because, I, and then getting into shooting videos and moments in time and entertainment stuff, TV kind of stuff, it, it's really about finding those stories and, and, and that. So. Photography for me is, is more about the experience and it's been detrimental to my capturing of images to post Instagram or self-promote, which I, had, I don't think I've posted for over a year. I want to go to places where I, I know I'm going to be able to get some photos, but that's not the point. I just, I just want to go there to experience the culture and, and, and drive around and, and do those things, you know, breathe the air or something. So that's kind of the way I'm waiting. It has to be, I, I want to take photos, but... It has to be at least 50% because it's somewhere that I just want to experience. And if we can take you to, I guess, our final question. If you could skip back to when you started, what is the one tip or piece of advice that you would give the younger you about photographic industry or... Hmm. Well, I figured out the airline miles pretty quick, so I don't think I needed advice on that. <laughs> Don't, it, it, we have a tendency, it, so this is, it's hard, it's a multi-part answer. Um, photography's hard. Um, not, not hard in the, the craft, hard, hard in the, the self-promotion, hard in the competitiveness, hard in, in that sense. One of the most accessible art forms for us is the hardest to make a business out of. And that's, that, that's part, of, and that's, that's where we can tend to take ourselves too seriously because we feel like we need to prove ourselves, you know, to, to, to clients, to protect clients to each other to other other photographers and I think that we always have to do that self check right because we should never take ourselves too seriously and I think that when when genuine uh, communication comes across it, it's, it's more valuable it's not a race um, and large ways it can be an endurance match as you guys know <laughs> Um, so take it easy and make sure that there's, you have to keep that spark of joy. I think we, we can oversimplify photography to the point where we think we can do it and we can just make it into whatever it is. But if that, that joy isn't there in doing what you're working on, then, then there, you know, there are easier ways to make money. <laughs> so it's not, like it was never about making money for me. That, that, it's, it's not that. There was, it was never about getting a big following on Instagram. It was because I, I wanted to create art. So. I, I really feel like that's the most important thing and, and get busy, you know, do projects, do all that kind of stuff. But if it gets to be too much, the second you start to feel like you're burning out, you have to pull back because without that core desire and, and, and passion, it, it's just not, it, there are better things you can be doing. Well, not better, but there's easier things you can be doing, you know, and that's, I think, just, just follow that what, what feels good. and. The, the other part of it is, it really is like the best, and I, and I, I got to learn to surf with 
pro surfers that lived across the street and like they're doing all this amazing stuff and like I'm, I'm like I stood up yeah you know I was like it's not that cool and I'm like how do you do you know how do you do a top turn how do you have it and they're like they're like it doesn't matter it'll come like it's like are you having a good time it's like having a great time he's like well the best surfer out there is the one that's having the most fun and I'm like here I am thinking two years ahead how I'm going to get this good at something rather than just enjoying the moment so you've got if, if you just let go don't think about the future meditate or whatever helps it, that's what it's all about it, it's about that moment that you're there it's not about what you're going to do with it it's it, that that's for you and that's really important Elijah thank you very much uh, we covered an awful lot there <laughs> but it's really refreshing in the end to hear that it's your passion for travel and photography that kind of still drives you so thank you for your time oh no thanks thanks you guys and thanks for the caffeine we've all been so busy this week right? well, <laughs> still thanks. standing thank you for joining us